Hey there, podcast listeners. I'm Mike Lucibella, and this is the Physics Buzz Podcast. I'm really excited this week because I get the chance to tell a story I've wanted to share with you for a while. In the summer of 2009, science writer Lizzie Wade and photographer Nick Russell set out across the country for an adventure. They needed to move Lizzie from New York City to Los Angeles, and like all good road trips, they needed a theme. They decided to have a summer of science. The summer of science was a road trip across the country that I did with my boyfriend, Nick, and we went to eight national laboratories and a couple of other big science sites across the U.S., mostly related to particle physics, but also some astronomy as well. It was a crazy, ambitious trip. We uh, drove around 15,000 miles across America and a little bit of Canada and visited eight out of the 17 Department of Energy National Laboratories, as well as a NASA lab and the Very Large Array, which is a uh, radio telescope, and the abandoned site of the superconducting Super Collider in Texas. We started at Brookhaven in New York before we even left New York, because that's where we started. Uh, we, we went south through Virginia into Oak Ridge, which is in Tennessee. Then back up to Chicago. Uh, and then we went, did sort of a zigzag for, uh, to visit Fermilab in Argonne, uh, as well as the University of Chicago site where uh, the first reactor was built. Then down to Texas, a little bit south of Dallas, to see the site of the superconducting super collider. And then we uh, we struck out west in uh, the VLA, a very large array, which is in south uh, southwestern New Mexico. New Mexico, where we went to Los Alamos National Laboratory. And then further west, you know, a little bit of a detour through the Grand Canyon. And, and then we went to L.A., which is where our ultimate destination was. In L.A., we saw JPL. Uh, and then north into the Bay Area labs, like uh, Slack, uh, Livermore, and Berkeley. And then finally, on the on the trip back, I, I swung back through uh, Minnesota to visit the Sudan mine, which is the, the, the final detector for the, an experiment, a neutrino experiment that begins at Fermilab. That's one heck of a cross-country trip. I can't lie, I kind of wish I thought of doing something like that. Visiting all those labs gives you a real first-hand feel for what's happening in the world of physics, something you just can't get from reading press releases. Each lab has its own unique personality and history. Well, they were all extraordinarily different from one another. Um, starting the trip out at Brookhaven again was uh, a really a, a nice experience because it, it's a much smaller accelerator and it's, it's a smaller feeling lab than some of the others. Um, so it was a really nice contrast with Fermilab, which in, in some ways does a lot of very similar physics, but on a much at a very different scale. Um, and... There was also a lot of history embedded in these labs that I, I personally found to be almost the most fascinating, almost as fascinating as the physics itself and the future of the physics. Some of the smaller labs are like Brookhaven or Argonne were just really impressive for their for their history and also for their just ongoing repurposing of that history. Like at Oak Ridge, for example, maybe my favorite machine that we saw was a cyclotron that had been operating since the 60s, which I think, I don't know of any other cyclotron that's still going since then. And they're still doing lots of really exciting new work, but it's there's all this history that's embedded there. Like we visited the graphite reactor that was the birthplace of a number of radioisotopes that did not, never existed before in, in the lab. A place like Argonne has a lot of history, and I think some of the the... Some of the buildings are just abandoned now. Nick wrote a good post on this. Every time an experiment shuts down, you have to decide what you can repurpose from it and work into new experiments. So there's a lot of things will look 
old without actually being old. They're doing all of these new projects, but they're also heavily, they also have this amazing past because it was, in a, in a sense, the first national laboratory because it grew out of the metallurgical project in the Manhattan, or the metallurgical lab of the Manhattan Project uh, back in the 40s. And so today, there's all of, there are all of these old buildings that still exist, like the Enrico Fermi's last reactor. We just sort of stumbled past it, uh, Chicago Pile 5. And uh, it's just in this crazy old building. And I didn't, we didn't even know what it was at first. It just stopped by the side of the road, and it was there. The smaller labs, like I mentioned, really have to be very, very resourceful, especially in recycling and reusing uh, machines and technology that they already have. Um, and I think the bigger labs, like Fermilab, have been, and the more, you know, the weapons laboratories too get a lot of attention and, and money. Um, they're used to, they were more used to getting what they needed when they needed it. But I think that divide is definitely shrinking. Fermilab was a major stop. Lizzie had an internship at its public affairs office in 2005, so it was like returning to her old stomping grounds. At the same time, Fermilab is home to the Tevatron, a four-mile-long atom smasher that for years was the most powerful in the world. It's a nucleus of American high-energy physics in a wholly unique place. I would say Fermilab is perhaps the most extraordinary uh, place because of it, it's so pure. It's all physics. It's all just geared towards this very pure science. It's sort of... Um... Robert Wilson's personal pet project in the 60s, and so the architecture is all very weird and designed by by Robert Wilson himself, who was a physicist and not an architect. They basically gave Bob Wilson a blank check to build the lab however he wanted to build it. So some of it is really strange, and the color schemes are all sort of not not your first choice for color scheme, maybe. It's really pretty crazy. Everything is orange and blue. Um, how, you know, there are pie telephone poles because that was what he wanted. And, uh, you know, there, uh, he, he would build a roof out of, he would just, like, cut out sections of, of pipe and, like, slap them on the roof, and, you know, because that was what was there. And he did this by just, like, pointing and making the decisions on the spot and doing a lot of the architecture himself, um, a lot of which didn't even really work and, you know, ended up with, like, lots of leaky roofs and strange floors and problems like that. But it's just... It's, you know, for many, many decades, it's been the heart of American particle physics. 2009 was a really interesting time because the LHC had started once but hadn't, but had had that, like, system failure, so it had to shut down again. And American particle physics was really sort of having to to think again about how they were going to deal with the LHC and how they were going to deal with the rest of the world because the U.S. has been the leader in, in high-energy particle physics anyway for many, many, many decades. So there was a lot of infrastructure building going on. Uh, you know, you could, you could see the labs where, you know, the control rooms and the labs where they would be using the data for, from the LHC, and everyone was getting ready for that data to come pouring in. But at the same time, they were still continuing the experiments that, it, that they had been doing previously because it was, you know, it wasn't quite at the stage where they would be doing all this new work. And, of course, the LHC wasn't running yet. And, and being the biggest was always what was most important for the U.S. in particle physics. And I think their willingness to rethink that was really impressive. But to see the, te- the Tevatron being 
being on its way out is, is sad for me. After Fermilab, they set out on a nearly thousand-mile drive to the abandoned ghost lab of the superconducting supercollider. But more on that in a later podcast. From there, they drove across hundreds more miles of open New Mexican desert to see the very large array, a collection of immense radio dishes tuned to the heavens. Well, you drive up to it, and it takes kind of a long time to get there. It's, you know, it's miles and miles off of the main highways. And so, you know, you're on, a, you're on just a two-lane road. Um, so you drive up to it, you don't really know where it's going to be, and you sort of see these specks off to your left from this weird highway in the middle of nowhere. And you say, is that it? Like, that doesn't look very large to me. You see it in the distance, but you don't think that that could possibly be it because it's so small. And, you know, it's just like a little glimmer of white. It's completely dwarfed by this spectacular New Mexican landscape. It's, in, it's on this enormous plateau. It's 7,000 feet, and it's ringed by mountains. And it's so much larger. It's, it's on such a larger scale than, the, than even this enormous thing that we humans have built. That it was just awe-inspiring. But it is it, and you get close to these, to the, to the dishes, and it really is huge. And then you're there beneath one of these, tel- these telescopes, and they're like 15-story buildings. You know, they're, they're larger than anything you, you would really have possibly have thought of when you're, when you're coming up to it. This, this, it's absolutely vast. It's the size of Washington, D.C. when it's, on, when it's at, at its greatest extent. Seeing them all, all at once and all working together and all sort of looking in the same direction, that's very beautiful. They have this almost human-like wonder at the sky. That, 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 uh, it, it's, it's a physical manifestation of human wonder. because They're all looking at the same place, and it's like a crowd watching something, watching a big explosion in the sky or something. You know, it's fireworks, you know, the stars. That was one of the only places where we couldn't actually have um, a guided tour designed for us. Pretty much the only people there at any given time are temporary temporary scientific workers, you know. But they have a very nice, like, walking tour set up. And you can see, you know, some construct, like, the one dish is always undergoing maintenance. You can see the, the rail lines uh, where they move the user facility. So you, uh, various experiments and, and groups will apply for time at it. Um, they come in to do some observations on their experiment. They get a few weeks or whatever, whatever is deemed appropriate for their needs, and then they go out and and hand it over to someone else. From there, the two continued on through Los Alamos, New Mexico, and into California. Along the way, they saw a Death Star at Livermore, an X-ray laser at Slack, and a stuck Martian rover at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I've only been able to scratch the surface of everything they saw. Fortunately for us, Lizzie kept a blog of their adventure, and Nick's a very talented photographer. Check out their website at summerofscience.wordpress.com to read more about their trip and see some of Nick's stunning photos. Unfortunately, that's all the time I've got for this week's Physics Buzz podcast. You can find more of our podcasts and articles at www.physicscentral.com. Thanks for listening.